Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. I'm Jodine Brewer and I'm a medical paralegal in BN's health law team. I'm also a practising registered nurse with a background in neurosurgery, orthopaedics and cardiothoracic surgery. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Barrister Melinda Zerner. Thanks for joining me on The Checkup today. Thanks, Jodine, for having me. I'm looking forward to sharing some insights into documentation with you today. So today we're discussing medical record keeping, whether your record keeping is on point and the consequences of poor record keeping. Before we dive in, I wanted to give our listeners a little bit of background on you, Melinda. As a barrister, you work in the arena of coronial inquests, personal injuries and medical negligence. And prior to becoming a lawyer in 2004, you had a 17-year career as a clinical nurse, an educator and a nurse manager. So you will definitely offer a unique insight into today's topic. Yes, I call on my clinical background often, um, particularly in relation to looking at clinical records, analysing clinical records and then advising on liability as to whether a hospital, doctor, nurse is liable or not and how we might be able to defend the claim. Great. So let's get started. Poor clinical record keeping not only has consequences for the patient, it can also have significant professional implications for the nurse. So Melinda, why do you believe accurate record keeping is important? Can you give us some examples? Look, I see contemporaneous, subjective, accurate clinical documentation as being really key in not only providing good quality healthcare, but also it's paramount in defending any allegations made by a patient or their family. In my practice every day, I see examples of poor or absent clinical documentation by nurses, doctors, and other health professionals. I've seen so many examples over the years as not only a lawyer, but then as a barrister since 2011, of really poor documentation, which has led to poor patient outcomes. Recent examples that I can think of is um, a patient who developed a stage three pressure area ulcer. And despite having a break in the patient's skin integrity up to eight days before a wound care chart was started, um, there was no management plan, there was nothing in place. And when they actually put the wound care chart into place and the interventions were acted, all of this was too late. Another example is a patient who was suffering fluid overload, bilateral pitting edema up to their knees, no daily weight was being recorded, and there was an incomplete fluid balance chart. And so nobody was really able to establish what was happening in regards to the patient's fluid status. Another example where a patient who suffered a syncopal episode with a blood pressure of 70 over 40, the patient was placed back to bed. No follow-up observations were recorded for some eight hours. When the observations were taken, they remained unstable. And a number of hours later, patient suffered a fatal cardiac arrest. So from both a clinical and law perspective, I really cannot stress how important quality documentation is. I read a recent case in where a judge had said that they accepted the plaintiff's evidence 
because it was the plaintiff's story and it was an important issue in the patient's life. And because there's no clinical documentation, the judge wasn't prepared to accept the clinician's version of events. And this is a common um, aspect that the courts look at and I guess an attitude that the courts adopt in regards to a patient's version over a clinician's version of events. As a practitioner myself, I appreciate that good health care starts with good communication. Effective communication between all health team members to deliver the appropriate care, to manage conditions and address all concerns underpins everything. Healthcare is 24-hour care and as treating practitioners pass on the baton to the next shift, accurate clinical record keeping assists to ensure clinical disasters are averted. Today I wanted to look at the example of Mrs. Colleen Stefanazen. Please excuse my pronunciation. For the purpose of today's podcast, we'll refer to her as Mrs. S. Mrs. S's family sued the surgeon and the hospital through the New South Wales Supreme Court in 2016. For those of you who are interested, the case citation is uh, Stefan, and I'm glad that you stumbled over the pronunciation because it's certainly a difficult name, um, but Stefan Anzan, which is S-T-E-F-A-N-Y-S-Z-Y-N, and Brown, and Brown and the New South, uh, Newcastle Private Hospital, PTY Limited, trading as Newcastle Private Hospital, 2016, New South Wales, Supreme Court, 826. So just to give you a bit of background, this medical negligence case tells the story of a series of surgical complications suffered by Mrs S when she went to the Newcastle Private Hospital for an elective hysterectomy. During her operation, her surgeon, Dr Brown, wrapped a loop of suture material around her bowel. Mrs S's post-operative care was shown to be poorly managed by Dr Brown and the nursing staff. Her vital signs, her vomiting and her worsening symptoms were not documented. No concerns were reported to Dr Brown until Mrs S's condition deteriorated to a critical level and tragically Mrs S died from those complications. Jodine, unfortunately, this isn't a rare event. Um, I've seen it commonly, and particularly in coronial inquests. I know that I've been involved in a couple of inquests um, where, for example, there's been a bar leak following a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and it's a very similar scenario. And whilst there's um, only a small amount of civil claims that we see within the case law, um, that doesn't reflect the amount of claims that we see. And often a case will only go to court when there's a dispute between the parties which can't be resolved through dispute resolution mechanisms. Um, so whilst there may not be many cases out there that people are looking at in regards to medical negligence, um, certainly the number of claims that come across my desk uh, don't reflect what we see in the case law. As commonly occurs in the case with Mrs S, there's a conflict between the recollection of the treating team. So we have the surgeon, Dr Brown, and he claims that he was not aware of his patient's complications as they weren't sufficiently documented. And he argues that the hospital and its staff were also to blame. This tragedy happened in 2008 and did not reach the courts until 2016. The patient's family sued Dr Brown, who settled the claims. He brought a cross-claim against the hospital. The hospital initially denied it had breached its duty of care, but by the time the trial was heard, the hospital admitted certain breaches of duty but denied those breaches had contributed to her death. 
Doctors and surgeons may have post-operative care they prefer, and this may be documented in the patient's notes. However, professional practice recognises that routine post-anaesthetic observations is an essential component of care. Generally, guidelines say post-operative observations should be taken 15-minutely for an hour, 30-minutely for two hours, and then hourly for four hours, and then fourth hourly after that. These guidelines should be documented in the patient's clinical pathways or their care plans. What we should see is respiratory rate, oxygen saturations, heart rate, blood pressure, and their temperature. We should see neurological assessments if required, a pain score, assessment of wound sites and dressings, the presence and patency of drains, fluid balance, and any other complications or assessment findings as the patient's condition dictates. Jodine, in this particular case, the nursing staff and Dr Brown weren't brought before the court and neither were the hospital's policies and procedures. And from what I can understand, this is likely due to strategic decisions by the defence, um, that is, those legal representatives representing the hospital and nurses and Dr Brown. And running litigation often is about strategy and obviously they made the decision in this particular case that it would be better fought, um, if I use the word fought, but better fought in regards to not calling those witnesses to give evidence. But saying that, we can determine from the case note um, what the many fails were with regards to the nursing staff and what Dr Brown did. I have attempted to piece together what occurred with respect to the care provided to Mrs S from the operation through to her demise on day five post-op. So to start, the day of surgery and the next were uneventful. Mrs S's recovery was tracking as expected. Dr Brown visited his patients sometime during the day. On the third day, Dr Brown visited his patient in the morning. Later that day, Mrs S had a large vomit of coffee ground fluid. This was documented on the clinical pathway and accordingly the attending medical officer was asked to review. Dr Judd queried whether a post-operative ileus was the cause. This was duly entered into the patient's notes. Unfortunately, that same night, no further observations were documented. The next day, day four, Mrs S's oxygen levels were recorded as 93%. She was seen to have at least four more vomits containing faecal-like fluid. She had a chesty cough. She was exhausted and could not manage to eat or drink anything. Dr Brown visited his patient at 10.45 that day and in response to the possible ileus, he ordered IV fluids for 24 hours and asked for her to be kept nil by mouth. Surprisingly, her progress notes that day read, bowels not open, nil nausea, ob stable. That evening, Dr Brown popped in to check on Mrs S. So now we come to day five. At 4am it was recorded that Mrs S had had another large vomit. She was coughing a lot, but had no further nausea. At 5am, Mrs S called for assistance. She had a tickle in her throat. 15 minutes later, another patient concerned about Mrs S's breathing difficulties got the attention of the staff. Her observations at that time were a pulse of 130, oxygen saturations of 73%, and her blood pressure, it was unrecordable. At this time, oxygen was applied. Soon after, Mrs S became unresponsive. The MET team was called, but they were unable to resuscitate Mrs S. Such a sad state of events. It is a sad state of events. Um, and Jodine, I've seen, as I said um, before, a similar sort of scenario in a number of crony linquests. 
And clinicians actually hearing this story probably think, well, it's very obvious um, and that something should have been done earlier. But it seems that um, if it's your particular patient on your particular shift, um, nobody's looking at the big picture and sometimes that's the problem. Um, in this case, there are a number of experts who provided expert opinion to the court and they were asked to participate in a joint conference and provided a joint report to the court. They addressed questions which were put to them by the various parties. And they considered not only the role of the medical officer, Dr Brown, but also the nursing staff. For the purposes of today, I'll focus just on what the experts said concerning the nursing staff. There was a Ms Gribben who was called as an expert, and I assume she's an expert nurse clinician, but it's not clear within the case note. Um, she found that the role of the nurse was to follow the treating doctor's orders, to report changes in conditions, to take accurate, regular readings of standard post-operative observations, as well as specific observations pertaining to the surgery or as requested by surgeons and anaesthetists, to observe for infections, to respond to verbal concerns from the patient and treating doctor, to record all findings on appropriate charts and or related care pathways if used at the facility and inpatient progress notes to identify fluctuations which may be abnormal, to contact surgeons and or anaesthetists if there are concerns about observations or the general recovery of the patient, to be accountable for professional practice in accordance with national competency standards, to work under direction and supervision of more senior nursing staff, and finally, to report concerns about patient health status and response to interventions to senior nursing staff. All experts who expressed an opinion on the role of the nursing staff agreed that the nursing staff did not undertake safe and appropriate observations and notations in respect of Mrs S's condition during her admission. So the court had to look at all of the evidence and make a decision as to what the finding was in relation to the case. And what the court concluded was that the nursing staff failed to record relevant observations on day two three and four post-operatively. The hospital's failure to ensure that necessary observations were kept and the clinical pathway guidelines adhered to by its staff contributed to the results. Dr Brown's error was not identified nor corrected as it could have been. There was a failure to make required observations and as deterioration in her condition were either detected or ought to have been detected, meaning there was no opportunity to address those deteriorations as the guidelines envisaged. This included notifying Dr Brown and or doctors on staff who could have pursued investigations and treatments which would have saved Mrs S's life and when she was not discharged on day four, which was expected as per the clinical path, an assessment by the clinical team was required. Further, the court found there was a failure to keep fluid balance charts when Mrs S started and continued vomiting faecal fluid and there was a failure by nursing staff to raise concerns with someone else when the treating surgeon, Dr Brown, would not order investigations to find the cause of the patient's deterioration. This in circumstances where her condition did not improve. So in considering all of that and all of the evidence, the court inferred that if the nursing staff had adhered to the hospital's own systems and had kept Mrs S under increased observation, and dealt with detected variances, as they ought to have done, when she failed to recover in its guideline documents envisaged, 
her death would have been prevented. In such cases as these, it's necessary for the court to establish contribution between the parties. So it's a balancing exercise of looking at all of the evidence and trying to work out where the liability falls. In this particular case, the court found that the hospital, that is, by reference to the hospital, the nursing staff, 20% liable, and Dr Brown, 80% liable. So after looking at the case, I further looked through the disciplinary findings and could not locate anything specific related to this case in relation to the nurses. If this significant departure from accepted professional standards were to occur today, a mandatory notification would be submitted to the Australian Practitioners Health Regulation Board, also known as APRA. Section 140 of the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law Act of 2009, Queensland, addresses this risk to the public. APRA would investigate the allegations against the nursing staff. APRA would then direct its advice to the Nursing and Midwifery Board. At that stage, the board would make its determinations and a decision is communicated back through to APRA, where they impose professional consequences like registration restrictions and supervision orders. So, to wrap things up, our message today is clinical record keeping is the responsibility of all healthcare providers. In the last few years, Australia has made some great leaps forward. The Australian Commission on Safety and Quality has developed some great new tools, for example, the ADS chart, which illustrates deteriorating vital signs and prompts for action when things don't go exactly to plan. This, though, is not infallible. Um, that's for sure, Jodine. I recall a recent case that I was involved in where there was observations which were taken by nursing staff they are clearly outside the parameters which were set in the ads. But because the doctor had been notified of those observations, the nursing staff did not consider it necessary to contact the doctor again and really accepted those observations as being uh, the new normal, I guess, um, and therefore uh, nothing further was required. Despite the ads chart requiring modifications to variances when such an example or such a situation occurs, that didn't happen and the nursing staff continued with this new, new normal and unfortunately um, a pregnant lady who ended up being very septic ended up losing her baby. Um, so I can't stress enough how whilst ads charts are there, um, if they're not followed appropriately as per the policy and the requirements of the ads, they're completely useless. Um, and I see that time and time again. So it's really important that we've got these tools, we have to use them. And these tools have been endorsed by the hospitals as quality initiatives, so they're part of the hospital policy. And like all policies, nurses and doctors have a legal obligation to use them correctly. Finally, if we could leave our listeners with some do's and don'ts for clinical record keeping. So first, the do's. Regularly notate a patient's progress against the treatment plan on the clinical pathway or in the progress notes. If there is a variance from what is expected recovery of a patient, Take the necessary action and record what action you have taken and the outcome of that action. Can I just add in there, Jonine, it's really important, I think, for nurses particularly to really trust their intuition. Uh, we talk about a nursing gut instinct or, or following that intuition. And so when a patient is deteriorating, to take that on board, to really undertake a clinical assessment, to document that, and then to notify the doctor or a senior nursing clinician as to what's occurring. So whilst you've got that intuition that things are going pear-shaped, do something about it and document about it. And it makes sense then that if you're reporting that to the doctor, 
you can explain why you've done those extra things if it's all documented. That's right. And I think if we record it that way and it's in the progress notes, it's protecting us in some ways, but it's also ensuring that communication is there. And I can think of an example um, when I uh, was back as a clinician. I remember it was a Saturday night and it was a urology ward and I called the doctor um, and the doctor was not happy about being called on a Saturday night. Uh, I was concerned about the patient and I documented that. In the end, he had to come in at 11 o'clock at night. But it was really important that I had that trial of, trail of documentation in regards to what was happening with the patient. Okay, and just to add to that, we need to record accurate and relevant information. So appropriately use the ADS scoring, as we've discussed. Use of fluids balance charts. So don't wait for the doctor's order. Use your clinical judgment if you think that they're required. And the use of wound care charts where necessary. We need to apply clinical judgment to increase frequency and the extent of observations as necessary and report variances on those observations. Again, you don't have to wait for the doctor's order. If you are not getting the expected response from the treating doctor, escalate your concerns go to a more experienced nursing clinician or to another doctor and document your actions accordingly. Just on that, Jodine, you mentioned um, about not waiting for a doctor's order. I think it's really important that um, we say we don't have to wait for doctor's orders, but it's really uh, incumbent upon the nursing clinician to use their own uh, nurse and, and uh, clinical assessment to actually start more frequent observations or to start that fluid chart or to take a photograph of that wound or whatever. And it's not really just waiting for that order. We'd actually be, as in a nursing um, clinician, would be um, seen to be acting un unreasonably and not at a reasonable standard if they didn't actually increase those observations on the basis that the patient was deteriorating. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So now to the don'ts. Um, we want to avoid abbreviations where possible or used approved abbreviations. And now with the um, rise of electronic records, there's an ease of cut and paste and we want to really avoid cutting and pasting because it leaves for errors in updating conditions and changes in treatment plans. I know, for example, in ICU, you often see cut and paste all of the time in relation to that first clinical assessment, which is carried on and doesn't seem to be updated. So I certainly see that as a problem. Um, and then lastly, we won't, don't want to alter notes um, after the original recording. And obviously with electronic records, that's really um, not able to happen because that's tracked in regards to time stamping, etc. But certainly with written records, um, it has been a problem in the past. I can remember an inquest where a midwife, um, in giving evidence, uh, conceded that she had actually made a retrospective entry. Uh, it hadn't been dated and signed. And how it was interpretive was that it was actually written at the time when it was dated, which was clearly wrong and was misleading. And certainly it was a very, very uncomfortable situation for that particular nurse. So I can't stress enough that if you've made a mistake, own the mistake. Uh, don't try and cover over it by a retrospective entry. Um, if, you, if you need to make an entry 24 hours later, uh, date that as the time you're writing it, uh, record it and say why you're actually making that retrospective entry. For example, the clinical record was being used elsewhere at the time. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say in regards to don'ts, Jodine. Thank you, Melinda. It's been great having you. It's certainly a topic we could have explored all day. Thanks, Jodine. Hopefully we've been able to provide some really important reminders to nursing staff regarding the importance of good quality documentation to ensure quality outcome for patients, 
but also in regards to defending allegations which may be made by patients and or their families. Before we go, if you're interested to read BN's case summary of the Stevenazid and Brown matter, we've included a link in the podcast notes. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to The Checkup. Make sure you've subscribed on Podbean, Apple Podcasts or Spotify to keep you up to date with new episodes each fortnight. And if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, head to bnlaw.com.au. Chat soon. Chat soon.